This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Bennett McCardle is in the studio with us today. Welcome, Bennett. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us and joining our discussion about science fiction. As I asked our previous guests, I wonder if you could tell us something about yourself before we begin our conversation. Could you let us know a little bit about your background and your relationship to CNIB? Well, I've been a volunteer recording audiobooks uh, in the CNIB studio for about 12 years now. Um, I qualified for this by reading intensively to my favorite young boys who were a very critical audience and who made sure that I kept the voices right and the sound of each character consistent. And I thank them for making me a good audiobook recorder. Before that, I was educated in anthropology at the University of Toronto, which is the reason why I've chosen anthropological science fiction as my chosen genre to talk about today. Uh, I spent a lot of my career as both an archivist who specialized in communication and information, and later on as a policy wonk for the provincial government, where uh, being clear and communicating with people who are strangers, who are aliens even, possibly, Mm -hmm. uh, is very, very important. And so the importance of information is very great to me. And in making sure you understand where the other person is coming from. And that's why I'm interested in this particular kind of science fiction writing. That is very interesting. Uh, But science fiction itself, there are so many different definitions. Even the scholars don't agree. But what does it mean to you? Science fiction means um, fiction which looks at the, through a scientific lens, uh, the problems we have now translated into the problems we have with another who is, for shorthand, called an alien. Uh, Aliens are anybody who is different from us. And the science fiction universe has grown up with aliens who may have tentacles, maybe blue, may not have uh, the same number of legs as we do, the same Mm -hmm. number of genders, uh, who may be enemies. Um, So we don't, we say, here's an alien civilization, we say in a novel like science fiction. How does it work? How do those people, or even if they are people, which we're not sure of, how do they move? How do they talk? How do they think? How do they work? How do they procreate or live in groups? Uh, Would we have been like them if we'd evolved differently, in a different environment, if we had six legs, if we had four genders or no genders, if we had 10 languages per person or no language, if there was scarcity in our world or no scarcity at all? Was there, is there, if there were no aggression or if there was perpetual war? Uh, If we were on a damaged planet or a warm, clean, beautiful paradise, a Garden of Eden. If we had three suns over our heads instead of one, or seasons that were 20 years long instead of two months. That's what I was interested in, and that's why this particular kind of science fiction I'm interested in is uh, the one that looks at people in their environment. And the differences don't really have to be that dramatic to divide us, do they? I mean... Humanity seems to have a tendency to divide, Um, even if on the surface everyone is pretty well the same. If you read Gulliver's Travels, what was one of the big controversies about? Which end do you break the egg? Are you a big Indian or a little Indian? Right? We'll find a reason to divide. As I, as I said previously in another interview, um, the philosopher Bertrand Burton Russell once remarked that uh, the only thing he thought would unite humanity would be an alien invasion because then they would be the other. And, you know, mm-hmm. so now it's us and them, right? <laughs> yeah, but what if us <clears throat> and them, what if we have to get along with them instead of fighting them? Mm-hmm. What if we fight them and find out we shouldn't have? That's the premise of of a number of very fine science fiction novels. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It seems we always need another. We always need an enemy of some type. And we always need to understand them, Mm -hmm. if only to defeat them more effectively, Mm -hmm. but better still to live with them. This is a rich theme. 
Uh, let me ask you, what, what first got you hooked on science fiction? Was it a book, a movie, a television series? What originally drew you to it? When I was quite young, I, start, I wanted to read about other things, things that were different. My family traveled a lot. They were a diplomatic family. And I moved a great deal and was, became aware very early that other people were not like me, uh, that other people were not like my family, and that I had to be polite to them. I had to understand why they shook hands or didn't shake hands, why they ate some food and not others. And I was always, as a result, felt I was the other. I was in somebody else's country. They weren't the aliens. I was. And that feeling when you get it as a child is very strong and it stays with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. What, may I ask what, what country or countries you, uh, you were, were in at the time? Well, I was born in the great foreign strange country of the United States, Washington, D.C., and we moved back and forth between that and Ottawa in the 50s, which is alien in modern terms. Uh, I lived in Paris where I was dropped into a French-speaking school with no preparation whatever in mid-year. Uh, I lived in, um, in Europe in various places, in France and in, in Switzerland, in Germany. I lived in Australia and Ireland. Not terribly foreign from most people's point of view, but foreign enough that I always had to make the effort to understand, to communicate, and to be respectful without being somebody who simply accepted anything that happened. Mm. So how has science fiction changed you? If it has, how has it changed your view of the world? It changed my view of the world by making me ask more questions. It's why I chose to study anthropology, I believe, in university, because anthropology mm. is the study of others, is, and others in a very personal sense, people as opposed to economies or policies or politics. And it studies, lang it studies societies and people's way of organizing themselves uh, who are different from yours. It studies languages that are not yours and how they work. It studies ancient things, archaeology, digging things up and trying to interpret them. And it studies physical anthropology, the how does your body work, and how did it evolve from something else that was other? How did it relate to others that weren't necessarily even our relatives, like the Neanderthals or the Denisovans? These are great and interesting mysteries, and all of that made me want to read science fiction. I think what triggered me was a single short story, which I read when I was probably about 10 or 12, uh, Isaac Asimov's The Ugly Little Boy, which is one of the most moving pieces of writing in all of science fiction. It's about a scientist who, well, time travel has been invented, and it's being used for somewhat frivolous and somewhat non-scientific purposes. The male scientists are going back and watching, looking at dinosaurs and getting off on ancient vegetation and all of those things that you get in pulp novels about ancient prehistory. But one day they find and bring back a human, an ugly little boy who may or may not be an orphan. The female technician back in the present day looks at him. He's got heavy brow ridges. He's got uh, stout arms. He's small and robust. And he misses his mother. It's not clear what they've done. It may be that they've kidnapped him. It may be that he's an orphan. We don't know. And what she does, uh, what the male scientists don't do, is console him or try to, and then decide what should happen next. And that story, which I won't spoil, is the thing that made me think I want to read more like this. Well, I intend to read that story. That's one I have not read. Mm -hmm. But you have intrigued me mightily about mm -hmm. that. So I will read it. So that was your trigger. That was, that's what drew you to the genre. One of them. And, and stories like that. There, there were many others at the time. I was also reading fantasy like The Lord of the Rings, which is full of strange and alien people, except that they never did exist. Um, and um, other things that tried to discuss humans. Because ultimately, science fiction is all about us today. Mm -hmm. Science fiction is not really about rocket ships or talking squids in outer space, as, as Margaret Atwood famously and said. I think she's since regretted saying that. Uh, and it's, it's about us, and it's about us as we bounce off the other, the strange. 
who are all about us and who we have to understand. We have to understand our prejudices about it because the other is somebody of a different race as well as somebody uh, with a different number of legs. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it was Bradbury who once said that um, science fiction is about the possible, fantasy is about the impossible. And um, I, I would like to ask you what differences you see between the classic science fiction and the science fiction of today. Uh, I think the science fiction of today is much more sophisticated in its understanding of of almost everything. Uh, the early science fiction was largely male-written. It was lar- it, Much of it was focused on hard science or what was perceived to be the exciting hard science of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Going back further even to the 19th century, Jules Verne uh, was incredibly revolutionary as a writer, but it, what people remember of Jules Verne or tend to is the adventures and the submarines and the under-the-sea things and the flying machines, those things that absolutely enchanted everybody. There's no doubt about that. But most of the writers there didn't ask a lot of questions beyond what's the new machine that will make our lives different. They didn't ask, will machines make our lives better, usually. There are always exceptions. Uh, There are a few odd early exceptions, like Alfred Jarry, who wrote a very early novel about gender uh, differences, and maybe we shouldn't have them that way, but he was, uh, let's say he was interested in fertilization more than anything else. But it took quite a long time before the, the, the guys' network managed to be infiltrated by the, um, what Joanna Russ, I believe, called the female man, mm-hmm. uh, the one who was an honorary science fiction writer because she was female. Uh, the famous case of, J- of James Tiptree Jr., who became a best-selling in science fiction terms author, initially only by calling herself James Tiptree Jr. instead of um, her real name. And oddly enough, I could, uh, her name was Alice Sheldon, but she wrote later on as Raccoona Sheldon, humorously, as if she couldn't actually use her real name. Ursula K. Le Guin published in Playboy, a very good story, but she was forced to publish it as U.K. Le Guin because men reading Playboy wouldn't read women's stories. That tells you a great deal. That's why the fiction I like, anthropological science fiction, is very largely written by women. And when it's not, it's written by people who are making, men who are making a big effort, clearly. They don't always get it right, but they get points for trying. Mm-hmm. Um, one novel science fiction novel I read many years ago, which I think you would enjoy. It was written in the ni- in 1930, and it was called Last and First Men. Olaf Stapleton. Yeah, Olaf Stapleton. Have you read that? No. Um, no. I, I think I tried and found the grandiose language involved a little bit much for me, but I'm willing to try again. Try again. It, mm-hmm. it just captivated me. Mm-hmm. Um, another... another Another novel uh, that really grabbed me was Titus Groan. Oh, yes. Yes. I put that under the category of fantasy, but it's awfully well written. Isn't it? And the atmosphere and the uh, the emotion that Mm -hmm. he can convey even just by describing architecture is remarkable. He was a very unhappy man. Yes. But a very articulate one. And he created his world building, uh, like the world building of some other authors I love, was exceptionally good. Yes, it was. And see, I don't mind fantasy. It has its own rules, as long as those rules are internally consistent. You don't violate your own rules. You can create mm-hmm. another universe, mm-hmm. but make it a consistent universe. Mm-hmm. World, building, <laughs> world building is very, very hard. And yeah. you're quite right. Consistency. And having rules and having and respecting them and having the rules be interesting ones because they're different from ours, but not different enough that you shouldn't be, you don't want to think about them, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you do want to uh, sit down and say, okay, is, does this, would this world work given its premises? So yes, it's really important. Yeah, very, very important. And you see, for, for Titus Grown, I struggled in the first 40 pages. I almost gave up. And then suddenly I was there. I broke through. I was in this marvelously rich universe. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I just loved it. I just loved it. So I wanted to bring that up because, in a way, that's very anthropological, too. It's, you had tribes. You had the bright carvers, mm-hmm. which really constituted another mm-hmm. tribe. You know, it was, it, was, it was a beautiful, beautiful book. Now, uh, you've mentioned already uh, a number of authors, or at least a couple of authors that you enjoy. Uh, at this point, I want you to tell our listeners about the books you most enjoy and what you would recommend for them to read and why. Mm-hmm. So I will turn over the floor to you. I will interject the occasional question. But I would like you to tell, uh, tell them now about some, uh, some of the books you, uh, you would recommend. Okay. Um, I've, I think of these books in three, roughly three categories. Uh, the, all, all science fiction is essentially anthropological because it's about people in a different dealing in a different world or environment, which is properly built, as you say, and who are coping with the alien, the other, or it could be an environment rather than an actual critter, but it is but it is uh, is still the other. I think of it in three groups. Um, the gender identity and gender questions is the big one, and I think some of the most interesting books ever written in, in science fiction are about the relationship between uh, our gender... Incident, not not just our sexuality, but the, the division of labor that comes with the division of gender. The second group is communication differences. Uh, not just language, but how do we communicate what we are and what we want? How does that get understood or misunderstood and thereby hangs a tail, usually? The third category is the physical look of the person. Uh, if we were in different bodies, would we still be human? Uh, how do I deal with a person who does not look like me? And you can see almost immediately how that would apply to real life and real people. And most of my favorite books in this genre fall into one of those three groups. Maybe I can tell you a bit more about them. Um, that, and as uh, uh, Kim Hull at the Merrill Collection of Science Fiction and Speculative Fiction says, uh, you don't see the other if you're... You don't see the water if you're swimming in it. Mm-hmm. And all of these books show you what you're swimming in by showing you how it could be different. The water is of a different color, and all of a sudden you realize you're in it. Um, so we're, first of all, uh, gender questions. What it would be like if our the features of our gender, our powers and roles in society that are assigned to us because we're male, female, or whatever else, uh, category you want to think about. What if the, these were different than they are? If What if power was delinked from questions of gender? Uh, what if we had to fight wars to delink it? Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale is a classic example of that. Most of the good writing about this subject has been by women, as I've said, and it's been recent. Um, until a, po- a certain point, science fiction was chronically estrogen-challenged, uh, and its uh, popular male writers couldn't really even cope with the question, although uh, Robert Heinlein sort of addressed it in Starship Troopers, like everybody was basically the same, and Asimov in The Gods Themselves actually allowed for a third gender, uh, and he sort of tinkered with that a bit, but sort of, but inconspicuously. It was the 60s after all, and they weren't, it wasn't the 70s. But when the 70s came along, then we have the good stuff. Uh, that was when Ursula Le Guin, my favorite science fiction writer, uh, and her friends wrote some novels that brought everybody's heads up on this. Um, one of her famous lines, the king was pregnant. <laughs> the king was pregnant. That gets that, one's attention, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that did get people's <laughs> attention. And her amazing novel from which that comes is The Left Hand of Darkness, which mm. I think is of myself is the greatest science fiction I've ever read. Um, it's uh, And it still is, even though it was written in the 70s. Uh, in it, they're basically human uh, people, but different inhabitants of the planet Winter, a very cold place like Canada, have no gender most of the time except for a few days a month when they can, if they hang around with another person who's that time of the month, can take on a randomly male or female physiology. They don't even know what they're going to end up as. And they are able at that point to conceive a child or just have fun sex. Uh, But the book's amazing not because of that, uh, but because it shows you the entire society that's built around these facts, that there is no gender most of the time. 
and that you have to go away somewhere uh, if for two or three days every month. She builds a complete world. How does the family work? How do the politics work? How do the religions work? What about culture? What about art? She writes their folk tales and uses them as part of the plot. It's an epistolary novel, meaning it's a novel set, told as a diary or set of letters by a human emissary who has come to this planet to ask them to join the great uh, organization of worlds, the ecumen. They're not, the emissary's not sure they're, it's, they're ready. He, and it is a he, a visibly male and black person, comes this, and his, his race, by the way, is irrelevant to the whole story. It is, it is clear that the inhabitants of winter look roughly like Inuit or Cree people because it's cold and because that's the best cold adaptive shape to be as a humanoid person. Uh, but she shows how their politics work, and there's a wonderful story that goes with it. The plot is very exciting. Um, and the senior politician and the emissary, the human emissary, who everybody else finds as a, has got to be a pervert because he's, he's visibly sexual all the, the days of the months. There's something really wrong about that guy. He's obsessed. Why did they send him as an ambassador? <laughs> yes, he's obsessed. They find that he's creepy. And he gradually realizes that this, it, took so, it takes a while. Uh, but the plot's wonderful, and not many people have done this sort of thing as well since, because she brings in everything, the politics that are different. Uh, there's, there is a dictatorship, and there is a, a more liberal republic. There are religions that resemble sentimental Christianity. There are resemble, religions that resemble Taoism or Buddhism. And why did they grow up in each particular context? You learn a lot about the world very indirectly by her descriptions. Uh, she has a lot of short stories on the same subject about societies with male shortages and female tyranny as a result, about marriages between four people that are required. It isn't a marriage unless you have four. Excuse, excuse me, Sorry. question. What does female tyranny look like? What, what form does it take? Uh, the hmm. women segregate the men and force them to, because there are very few men and because there's an attempt to rebuild the population of a damaged earth, mm. um, the matri it's a ma matriarchal dominant uh, society for, for a reason that you understand. It's not random bad ladies. Um, the men have to be controlled. The men are aggressive, were aggressive. They're kept in uh, essentially corrals, societies, given enough to enjoy themselves and used for procreation. Yeah, they're breeders. They're breeders. They're breeders. And it's not, it's, and it's it's not it's particularly nice. It's sort of the flip side of The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, it is. It's very short. It's called the, It's mm -hmm. a short story called The Matter of Segri, which I think should be in, in all anthologies because it is, it, it's, it is subtle in its own way, and it is shocking, but not because of any language or graphic violence. It's because mm -hmm. you can see how it might happen, mm -hmm. and you could see how women could be like the male dictators that we don't like. It is, as you say, the reverse of the handmaid's tale. Handmaid's tale. Um, that uh, there are, she has many other stories about women who are treated as equal to men on one planet, and on the neighboring planet, they're obedient housewives who are under control. And what happens when there's immigration between them? Now, that's another good story, mm -hmm. The Dispossessed, her, her other great novel. Another remarkable example is Octavia Butler's trilogy called Lilith's Brood, which brings together all the issues of race, sexual identity, human aggression. What if the earth were damaged, there were not a lot of humans left, uh, aliens turned up benevolent, it seems, uh, and the aliens offered endangered humans the chance to survive, but only to by interbreeding themselves with the aliens, uh, who were three-gendered, by the way, and pretty calm people, so that both the the genes for both aggression and racial difference were obliterated. So uh, that's Lilith's brood. Lilith's brood. It's a trilogy. Uh, Adam's second wife, mm -hmm. Lilith, and also it sounds very Old Testamenty, where the 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 uh, the uh, uh, angels uh, saw the daughters of man and found them attractive and came mm -hmm. down to to mm -hmm. breed with them. Right. Or to try to. Okay. Now, Octavia yeah. Butler is very subtle, and she's not saying mm. she 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 gives all sides of this question. Her word building world building is also very good. She, I think, she is the senior African American writer in science fiction today, 
and it shows. This is only one of her great pieces of work. Uh, Barry Longyear's uh, novella, Enemy Mine, I won't give any spoilers in this. It's apparently, it's important that you should not have that. Deals with some of the same issues, but the interest there is that fatherhood is the focus rather than motherhood. Um, there are others, Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice, which also brings in the issue of bionic bodies as well as gender. Sherry Tepper's The Gate to Woman's Country, another the men are, d are dying out and the women have got to take over and what do they do with the men? Um, there is Elizabeth Vonnerberg's, who is a, she's a Canadian from Quebec, The Motherland. All variations on the theme of what if women were in control? What would they do? What would they have to do to continue being human? Even Terry Pratchett, my favorite comic writer in fantasy, has fun with the concept in his Discworld novels, where both, for example, male and female dwarves are both bearded, carry battle axes, and mine gold, <laughs> and you don't know which is which, and at least one of his plots in the wonderful novel Thud turns on this very fact. Um, Eleanor Arneson's Ring of Swords, which is a one-hit wonder I love, uh, sets up a fascinating triangle with uh, aliens Men as warriors, women as controlling matriarchs, but having but using their power wisely. Uh, both of the people, the aliens in this group, are furry and sort of feline because cats come up a lot as in as an alien form. Mm. Very interesting fact. And then there's a third triangle: mysterious animals like jellyfishes, who might be sentient if the scient or might be found to be sentient if the scientists who are studying them can stop being distracted by the furry queens that she has to negotiate with and start looking a little more, more closely at the jellyfish. This is a wonderful tri triangle here. Humans, <laughs> uh, furry, sentient, and very dominant people, and uh, the jellyfish who might actually be talking to her. So all of this leads to the second issue, communication, the problems mm. of communication. The aliens are finally communicating with us, but we don't understand their language. So we have to learn it. We learn it. They learn our language. We think we now understand them. But our differences go much deeper than language. Maybe we don't really understand them. Uh, now, you'll recognize that as the premise of the great movie recently, uh, Arrival, mm -hmm. which is based on a short story by Ted Chiang, one of my current favorites, The Story of Your Life. In this, a female linguist is assigned to decipher the communications of some scary alien ships that are hovering silently above the Earth. Uh, she does, she and her friends do decipher the language, which is amazing in itself. And she finally realizes that everything about it from the aliens, from the shape of the letters they use, all the way up to their way of seeing the universe, are so radically different from humans that, well, she changes too because she has, un has understood these things. In a very strange and moving way, she goes native. Mm -hmm. and mentally, that is, because she now speaks and understands what's behind and underneath the language. It's an amazing feat. Um, a more, let's say, more prosaically, if you're a Star Trek fan, you'll remember the famous Star Trek Next Generation episode called Shaka When the Walls Fell. Uh, and in that, Captain Picard, a feat of great cultural intelligence, manages to decipher the language of some hostile aliens who speak in poetic illusions to traditions that only they know, but because Picard understands human deep culture, which isn't with Shakespeare, among other things, he realizes that they are likening the hostile encounter between them and the humans to great battles in their past, as if we wanted to say, I love you to somebody. Instead, we said, Juliet on the balcony, mm -hmm. which was our way of saying, I love you. The way You're speaking almost in haiku. And in, 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 well, there's a, there's a wonderful essay that argues what this is. Is it metaphor? Is it allegory? Is it simile? Is it impossible? And this is, this story is full of hooey. Uh, it's, uh, it's delightful. He turned, I mean, Picard turns it around and makes a truce because by a question and answer exercise, this is actually very well dramatized. He finds the, the myth, the happy ending myth that he can then invoke and he brings about peace between them because they understand that he understands. Orson Scott Card's uh, novel, Speaker for the Dead, which is another on my candidate for greatest science fiction novels ever written, is another novel like its better known predecessor called Ender's Game, uh, involves a fundamental failure of communication with some aliens. It nearly derails the interspecies relations of an entire planet. 
what if what looks to you like an act of aggression and violence is in fact for the aliens a sign of deep religious and personal respect? It's a very dramatic story. It's it's hard to read in places, but it is brilliant in bringing up this question and saying you have to look at it. You don't have to like it, but you have to look at it and understand it. Um, and in another, there's another novel that's very similar in its underlying premise, The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which is an incredible novel. Uh, in this, an intelligent and culturally sensitive Catholic missionary, a Jesuit, of course, that's what Jesuits are for, to be interesting characters in science fiction stories. It's happened more than once. Um, he is sent as a missionary to a, pl a complex society on another planet, along with some scientists. And this society, again, it's furry and it's feline looking. There's a theme there. Uh, he has a tragic encounter with these aliens because a major cultural misunderstanding has happened. Um, and it takes all his religious belief to deal with the pain he suffers as a result. Uh, and yeah, there's a follow-up novel called Children of God in which he actually goes back to the planet and keeps trying to think about this and keeps trying to decide what to do. It's uh, I understand people who are sophisticated in theology find it a very moving and thoughtful, thought-provoking couple of books. Um, finally, there's C.J. Cherry's Rider at the Gate. She's prolific and interesting all the way through her stuff. But Rider at the Gate shows what happens when part of your community is a problem for an interesting reason. Part of your community are your essential guards people. This is a mining planet. It's rough. It's the, the guards people are sort of like cowboys. But what if your guards people, who are essential, are telepathic and, to boot, have telepathic sentient steeds, which make them good, good at their job, but add an animal factor. They're sentient, but they're animals, and there's an interesting result of that. These guys are mentally disrupted, disruptive to the semi-sensitive normal humans they guard in the mining community. Um, so how do you live calmly in a community if you're an ordinary human? Not very telepathic, but you do receive some vibes. How do you live in this community when the horses are freaking out and broadcasting their emotions when they sense distant dangers? They're good guard animals. They, they, they know an enemy is coming. Uh, they broadcast on all... all um, uh, channels, and everybody gets the boops. Um, this is a serious part of the plot. I'm being frivolous, but it's it's really interesting. So the power relationships and the social control that's needed to prevent this leakage of emotion, especially animal emotion, it's fascinating. And it's almost incidental to the plot of the book, but that's a good writer operating there. Um, the there's Suzanne uh, Hayden Elgin's Native Tongue. Um, the special language that women have in the book, that women are subjugated somewhat in the same way that the people in The Handmaid's Tale are, but over the long term, um, they have to use women's language, which is lesser, inferior, like uh, women's language in Heian, Japan in the 10th century. Uh, but the same thing happens in her books that's happened in Heian, Japan. The women are the only people who communicate clearly because the men are stuck in an ossified, formal court language, uh, like Chinese in the, in the early Japanese courts. So only the women can communicate with the aliens who are trying to attack the planet. So they, they, they have the, the demotic form of the they language. They have the demotic and more direct form of the mm -hmm. language, just as the Japanese of the 10th century wrote women, specifically, wrote some of the best literature in the world. And the first novel was written by one of those women, mm -hmm. Lady Murasaki. There's a connection there. Um, and third and last of the type of novel I like in this genre is the novels about the physical, the physical shape of humans. What do physical differences among sentient beings really mean? So there are questions like, let's take a real example. What were our real and apparently human cousins, the Neanderthals? Uh, were they what we call human? We're learning more about them every, every month. I keep reading new stories about what genetic um, analysis has discovered about we them. We still have their DNA to some extent. Yeah, and I happen to be in the ethnic group that has the highest possibility of, DNA, of Neanderthal mm -hmm. uh, gene load. Uh, I am going to have my DNA analyzed. I finally decided to plump for it after reading about the implications. 
And I, I will be sort of disappointed if my percentage is low, but because my family comes mainly from the Celtic fringe, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's quite possible I'm one of those. And that the implications of which genes you inherited from the Neanderthals are very interesting for this for the history of humans. I won't go into it now, but they're worth reading about. Um, so Neanderthals, what, what would we do if we met one today? Um, could we live with them? Could we have children with them? Um, could we cope with the stress involved having to live with somebody who was different? How would we deal with our ugly little boy? Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, Robert J. Sawyer, who mm. lives right here in Toronto, has a wonderful series on exactly this subject, a trilogy called The Neanderthal Parallax, um, uh, hominids, humans, and hominids, humans, and hybrids, I think it is, that constructs a parallel Neanderthal civilization in which the human, the Homo sapiens died out and the Neanderthals survived uh, in a parallel universe which then intersects with ours. And there's a crossover and stuff happens as a result. His world building about what a Neanderthal civilization would be like is fascinating. I don't, not completely convinced by it, but a lot of it is, is good, I think. And, um, then he has he the intersection is great. I've there are several other stories about this that are worth mentioning. I've already mentioned um, the ugly little boy, which impressed me. Well, that intersection between Homo sapien and um, and Neanderthal was also explored to some extent in the Clan of the Cave Bear. I mean, many years ago. I know. I know. I never read it. It was a big deal at the time. You were right not to have read was it. Was it that bad? Uh, kind of the cave bears anthropologically mm. junk. Is uh, it really bad? Uh, it was basically modern people dressed up in furs, acting the way modern people might. There's a much better novel, which like uh, that, written by an anthropologist who, for once, could write. Mm-hmm. Not most of them can't write very excitingly. Um, there's much better that I would recommend. There, it's in fact about Homo sapiens, but it, you might get the same sorts of things about it. It's uh, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas's uh, Reindeer Moon and its parallels slash sequel, uh, The Animal Wife. Mm-hmm. It's about hunter-gatherers in prehistoric Siberia. And there are two parallel novels. One is this much the same, one story told from the women's point of view and then many of the same events told from the men's point of view in the second one, The Animal Wife. Uh, it's a feat of imagination and emotionally, psychologically, and historically much more realistic than any of the gene oil and others. Um, so one of the things she points out in this book, these books, is um, what are the implications of being a hunter-gatherer for the way you relate to people? You're in small groups. You can't find um, a mate very easily, so you have to travel much further than people thought. Uh, some things that aren't important to us now are very were very important then. Uh, I won't go into detail because I'm enthusiastic about the book and I would go on, but um, that's one of the other books that made me stay in reading this sort of thing because there were so many really bad ones mm-hmm. about prehistory yeah. that the good ones really stand out. Um, well, I'm sorry to interrupt uh, mm-hmm. to get back to Robert Sawyer. Yes. You, you were you were talking about that, and I did find that very interesting yeah. about the parallax. Yeah, and there's a third short story about uh, which I highly recommend, uh, recommended by uh, by Kim Hall at the Merrill, in which I was very grateful for, a short story called N Words, by Ted Kosmatka. It's very timely. It's, mm. He's wrote it quite well in 2013, a little before the most recent genetic stuff was published. But it's moving and powerful in the same way that The Ugly Little Boy is. So The N-Words by Ted Kosmaka. It's available online. If you Google it, you will find it quite easily. Uh, and well, One thing I'm going to ask uh, to, uh, for us to do is to make all these titles, uh, the, the ones you're providing, and uh, our other guests available online so people can listen to this interview. And if they don't catch the title... By listening, they can always see the listing. So if you could provide us with this information, we'd be most grateful. Very good. Yeah, I will. Well, the second thing under the physical shape of humans is, are we still human if we're bionic? Um, Our consciousness, what if it was downloaded into a machine? Is a machine that's made and taught to imitate humans human? Mm -hmm. Uh, Should we treat it or he or she as if it were a biological human? And what, what is the consequence? Actually, we've, we've discussed this theme earlier today, 
about what constitutes being human. Now, if something we create passes the Turing test, if it's fully self-aware, if it fights for its survival, mm-hmm. do we have to grant that per, uh, personhood? And what do we? And novelists don't necessarily answer that question directly. They're really mm-hmm. frustrating. They 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 play it out as a story, mm-hmm. and you can decide whether you think the story is believable or not. So there's some a lot of famous movies recently and television shows about this because it's physically so dramatic and because when you're talking about guy movies, action movies, they there's a lot of scope for it. Uh, Blade Runner, Robocop, AI, She, mm-hmm. um, of course, character of Data in Star Trek, uh, any number that you probably know better than I are, are really good illustrations. And they explore, what I'm interested in is that they explore the th- our thoughts and fears mm-hmm. about all of this. And that's still, it comes down again to the physical being of a, of, of a human. And not only is it human, which is an academic question, but how should we relate to it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that mystery. What, what are our ethical obligations towards, towards such a, a being? That too. And if we're scared of them, what do we do? do mm-hmm. Is there a plug we can pull? Mm-hmm. And if there isn't, how do we relate to it? Uh, this is, it's incredibly interesting. And while a lot of that sort of stream is in the uh, hard science tech, the action tech, the transformers with, uh, with armor that transform into something else, which is uh, kind of thing that I find not enjoyable. I'll use moderate language. Um, I'm more interested in the feelings that people have and what they do as a consequence that changes them, that changes the society they live in and either allows or doesn't allow that human, uh, that thing which isn't human but is relatable to happen. I think some people are familiar with the alternative ending to the movie Blade Runner, which throws the entire movie into another into another light, uh, that it is not clear whether one of the main characters is or is not a replicant, mm-hmm. is a an android, a manufactured being. And the movie can be watched both ways. It's I think that's a feat of imagination that I still am in awe of. Um, I sort of one of the f- la- the last fascinating things I want to mention is a linguistic one. Um, there wasn't a vocabulary for this. There's human, non-human, um, but uh, Orson Scott Card. A lot of people have trouble with with his attitude to to number of things, gender in particular, but he his his imagination gave us an essential vocabulary for this kind of science fiction he thought out in the course of his books about ender who uh as i will give a spoiler on this because it is so well known the ender's game the first novel um ends with the realization that uh the hostile aliens that they've been battling for the whole book were not in fact hostile they just didn't understand each other. And that the characters in the novel have to pay for making the wrong assumption for what you might say millennia afterwards. And uh, in t- talking and thinking about this, what's an alien, what isn't? He, start, he talked, he invented uh, names for the five degrees of foreignness of aliens or of sentient cr- of creatures. And I just wanted to mention them because they're absolutely fascinating, very useful. The names he gave them are actually Swedish or Scandinavian, so you, but you can ignore that. The Utlannings was the first one. Utlannings are strangers, but they're definitely human. They're of one's own human species and one's own culture. They may be strangers, but they're us. There's no doubt about that. The second category are Framlings, members of one's own species, but they're from a different culture. Uh, substantially similar to my culture, but significantly different from me. Um, so the, so far, they're all on Earth as we know it today. The third character, the third type is Raman, Raman, strangers from another species who are capable of communication with us as if they were human. They're capable of peaceful coexistence with us. They are sentient. They're not animals. Mm. They're ramen. So we know they're they're strange. This is the classic alien. Um, The fourth category is very interesting. It's Varelsa. 
no beings or creatures. These are strangers from another species that aren't able to communicate with us. These are true aliens. They are sentient, they are intelligent, we think, but they're completely incapable of common ground with humans. And uh, they are thought to be capable of thought, but we just don't know. And a lot of the problems in these novels come, come uh, around the question, is this alien Varelsa? Is it Raman? Or am I missing something? So not entirely sure whether they are sentient, if, if there's zero communication. We think they are sentient. That's why. Well, on the that's, basis of what? Well, in the basis of whatever happens in the plot, uh, Ender's Game is a classic example of something that they thought was Varelsa and was really mm -hmm. Raman, and we should not have behaved in the mm -hmm. way we did with them. They are not Dur, or which is the fifth category, true animals in our modern sense. And Card says of this, he had asked himself some of the same questions. In fact, other people asked him because they found this categorization really interesting. Um, aliens we know are sentient and capable of communication, even if maybe we don't know their language right now. Mm. Uh, and Farrell said that we think might be sentient and able to communicate with humans, but they haven't, and so we're not sure. And we, those are possibly dangerous, possibly mm -hmm. not. They could be our friends. They could be our enemies. They could be jewel, they could be animals, but we haven't discovered yet. And when Card was asked, prodded on this subject, he said, the, real, the difference between Raman and Varelsa, between communicating aliens and non-communicating aliens, is not in the creature judged, but in the creature who's judging. When we declare an alien species to be Raman, it does not mean that means communicate, we can communicate with them. It does not mean that they have passed a threshold of moral maturity. It means that we have. And encapsulated in that is a lot of what I find interesting about yeah. all of it. Moral maturity is a, a very good term. Um, speaking of gender and the other and uh, humanhood, it uh, wasn't that many centuries ago where there was an active debate in Europe whether or not women were truly human. Persons. Right. Mm -hmm. Were they persons? Uh, I think um, one of the church fathers considered them flawed men. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, the, the female man. Mm -hmm. as, as Ursula de Gwyn has a very funny story on the subject of mm -hmm. when she uh, became a man. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, talks about the different ways in which she was seen as this flawed man, mm -hmm. uh, which I've already mentioned, and how she um, managed to cope with the difficulties of becoming a man. And anybody like me who have an androgynous name, or at least a, a gender-ambiguous name, mm -hmm. have, has had the experience of being assumed to be one thing. Mm -hmm. And then when the person meets you, finds they're another, there's a reaction. Mm -hmm. And I have seen that reaction. It isn't always a change in attitude for the better. Um, I've, I found it amusing, thank goodness, because I had other advantages. But uh, it is there. Mm -hmm. And that's just the name. What if a lot of other things intervened, like what you looked like? Gender, race. Mm -hmm. Race and what is... Uh, and alien, by, by saying, oh, we're talking about something that has that is... is blue-skinned and has six legs, which is in Robert Sawyer's uh, story, uh, Calculating God, this happens. The aliens land, they're blue, they've got six legs. I think blue, I'm, I may have got the color wrong. Uh, they have six legs, they land outside the Royal Ontario Museum, and they say, take me to your museum curator, not take me to your leader. <laughs> and then, and um, so, but the alien, so the curator, fortunately, because he's an academic and because he's a little a little eccentric, manages to communicate with them quite quickly. A lot of other people in the story aren't quite so comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. I find this that one, those scenes in the, in the book amusing. Some of the other parts of it are very moving and interesting. Um, and the whole question of once you've decided that you can communicate with the alien, uh, what goes on from there? He has another one in which the uh, illegal alien, in which the alien tangles with the human legal system, which other, which also uh, has a lot to say that is interesting about our assumptions about others based on the fact that they don't look like us, talk like us, 
come from the same place we do. Well, you know what? This tendency in, in primates, and we are primates, and it, we can be a very nasty species. And when we look around the world today, it seems we're having a lot of trouble dealing with the other, aren't we? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Terry Pratchett said the problem with humans is that they're operating with a language, which was his subject, operating in a language that was developed to tell other others where the ripest, where the most ripe fruit was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the human limitations. You, you understand more about human limitations when you look at um, an alien who doesn't quite have those limitations. Mm-hmm. Not all powerful aliens with much better ray guns than we are, mm-hmm. but aliens that just are free of some of the assumptions that we our society feels are essential to us. Indeed. Well, Bennett, this has been a, a marvelous conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm sure so have our listeners, or so will our listeners enjoy it when it's posted. And before we wrap it up, is there something else you'd like to tell us before we go? Yes, there is. I was helped in thinking out all of these things by a, the wonderful people at the science fiction collection of the Toronto Public Library. It's known as the Merrill Collection after Judith Merrill. It's, it's, it's den mother. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy. These are people who really know science fiction, and they can talk about it in, intelligently. And uh, Kim and Boris of this collection helped me to get my mind in order about this, although any mistakes I've made uh, are mine. Uh, They have recordings of science fiction audiobooks, which are basically the collection of all of the Toronto Public Library, so they're accessible in the same way as other accessible publications. And they are very interested in their serious customers. I got a lot out of this. I have to thank them, and I think other people would find them enjoyable to talk to as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And a pleasure for me. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts. Visit